Hi, I'm Andrew, and this is the Daily Keenon podcast about today's global crisis. The coronavirus pandemic is dramatically disrupting not only our own daily lives, but also society itself. This show features conversations with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers about the deeper economic, political, and technological consequences of the pandemic. It's the daily podcast trying to make long-term sense out of the chaos of today's global crisis. One of the great economic and political issues connected with the coronavirus pandemic is how will it affect inequality in today's society? Um, some people argue that it, it, it is the event which will result in people rethinking inequality and perhaps result in an economic revolution. Others suggest that it will actually compound current inequalities. Walter Scheidel is a professor of history at Stanford University and the author of a really important book called The Great Leveler, which looks at inequality throughout history and figures how it was fixed and why it was fixed. Um, in The Great Leveler, he introduces uh, a concept he calls the four horsemen of leveling. Walter, who are those or what are those four horsemen of leveling? The things that historically have resulted in inequality being confronted and sometimes even eliminated throughout history. The four horsemen of leveling are four different kinds of catastrophic events that throughout recorded history have brought down economic inequality, inequality in terms of income and wealth. For most of history, pre-modern history, it used to be the collapse of states, which makes a lot of sense because early states were set up to favor the rich and powerful. And if those structures of government unraveled, the rich simply had more to lose. Everybody suffered, but the rich had more to lose. And as a result, you get massive leveling. The second pre-modern uh, horseman uh, was uh, pandemics, uh, like the Black Death in the late Middle Ages, where so many people died in Europe that labor became scarce. The surviving workers could charge higher wages. Uh, their employers had to pay those higher wages, and the land owned by the rich was worth less because there was less demand for it because there were fewer people, so the rich were less rich, and the poor were less poor. Then in the 20th century, uh, two new horsemen appeared on the scene. They are closely related. One is mass mobilization warfare of the kind we saw in World War I, especially in World War II, where a whole uh, number of things happen and interact to bring down inequality, massive state intervention in the private sector, diminishing returns on capital investment, full employment, very high taxes on the rich to pay for the war effort, um, any number of things, strong unions and so on. And that, in turn, in some places, gave rise to communist revolutions in Russia and World War I in China in World War II. And, of course, communist revolutions, it's self-explanatory why they would be leveling events, because that's one of their main objectives, to get rid of the rich and impose a heavily policed form of economic inequality on the total population. Uh, two of the most vivid chapters in your remarkably erudite book are on lethal pandemics. The first chapter focuses on the impact of the Black Death on uh, Middle Age Europe, 
and the second on the uh, the impact of um, European colonialists on on Latin America. Um, these are really gory chapters. Explain how both these pandemics in in in, in Middle Age uh, in, in in the Middle Ages in Europe and in um, in in, in post independent or, or colonialized Latin America confronted inequality. I'll start with the medieval example because in a way it's better um, documented. We know that by 1300 in the high middle ages, economic inequality throughout Europe had reached very, very high levels. You had a small upper class of landowners and a large population of impoverished peasants and serfs and tenants and wage laborers. And then the plague came in in the middle of the 14th century it killed a third maybe of all people in Europe, as many as half of all people in places like England. And that means uh, that you have a shortage um, of labor and almost immediately the surviving workers start charging higher wages. And by higher wages, I mean wages that in real terms, in terms of the purchasing power, were two or maybe even three times as high um, as they had been before. And of course the elites are unwilling to pay up. So they try to resist uh, those demands. In some places they succeed, in other places they fail. In Western Europe, they generally fail. They have to give in, they have to allow workers to bargain for the best deal. As a result, wages uh, paid to workers go up, rents paid by tenants go down, the rich are less rich, the poor are less poor. But in other parts uh, of the world, in Eastern Europe, in Poland, in Russia, the nobility maintains a united front and they crack down on the peasantry, forcing them to work under worse conditions in a way, uh, uh, in, in, under less free conditions than uh, before, and something similar happens in Egypt. So it's, uh, the plague doesn't act on its own. It doesn't act in a vacuum. It very much depends on the type of regime that's in place in determining what the eventual outcome is going to be in terms of economic inequality. And I think that's uh, potentially an, an important lesson for our own time as well. So what's the lesson then for today's pandemic? Does it depend on the kinds of systems? M might we argue that, um, that the Anglo-Saxon uh, neoliberal system will actually compound inequality, uh, whereas the, the, the European, more social democratic model will reduce it, given the impact of this pandemic on the working class? I'm not sure if any system is going to reduce inequality uh, right now, but what you already what what is going to happen, I think, is that existing differences between countries in terms of levels of inequality may actually persist uh, throughout this crisis and beyond. You already see that some European countries have instituted more generous measures uh, than the United States that will help workers and small businesses uh, more effectively survive this and come out. Um, halfway good shape um, at the other end. And so you would expect Europe to end up with perhaps temporarily somewhat higher levels of inequality because no government is able to absorb the entire uh, shock. Uh, but you would also expect uh, uh, the US to retain the high levels of polarization of inequality that we have now experienced uh, for quite some time because the current interventions are really short term. Uh, fixes. They are designed to keep everything uh, afloat, 
but preserve the established order, uh, the ex existing finance uh, system, the corporate uh, system, uh, just um, keeping everybody afloat for as long as it takes, and then go back to more or less uh, business as usual. And there is a pretty good chance that this, that this might work just the way it worked after the financial crisis in 2008. And I guess the irony is that the people dying in, 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 in today's pandemic are people who generally don't work. It's the older, it's the infirm, it's the sick. Well, there are certainly uh, one group, but then, of course, there are people who do work, who do very important jobs, like in healthcare or in, in law enforcement or in, in certain service uh, sectors who are considered to be essential. And we can already see uh, that uh, for them, rates of infection and morbidity and fatality are also um, higher uh, than usual. So it's not just the elderly who are being affected by this, it's specific sectors of the economy, of the, of the population as well. So, Walter, you're rather pessimistic in terms of this resulting in profound change to the people who say, this is our opportunity. This is the moment where we change everything, where we revolutionize the healthcare system, where we raise taxes, where we make sure that society is a fairer place. Your response is, that's pretty unlikely. It's pretty unlikely, but it's not impossible. And one thing that might give us hope is that before 2008, People didn't usually talk very much about economic inequality, although it had been going up for several decades at that point. And it took a major crisis uh, to make more people wake up, so to speak, make wake up to this uh, reality. And it's been since 2008 that economic inequality uh, has a much more prominent role in the public uh, consciousness, in politics, in the media, in academia, in various uh, domains. There would not have been a Bernie Sanders before 2008. Nobody would have listened uh, to a democratic uh, socialist. So things already changed back then, and uh, greater um, inequality is has been on the agenda ever since. So there is hope uh, that enduring yet another crisis, a crisis that may well turn out to be even more serious than the crisis uh, of 12 years ago, uh, will amplify this process, will persuade even more people that inequality is something uh, to worry about and that more radical policies may uh, be a, a way of addressing this problem. That's by no means a given. There is no guarantee this is going to happen, but there is certainly a greater likelihood of it happening uh, than there was just a few months ago. What's the likelihood that the coronavirus pandemic will trigger one of your other horsemen of leveling, either transformative revolution or state failure? Uh, not in high-income countries. They are much more resilient than they were even 100 years ago at the time, say, of the Spanish flu. Uh, uh, this event certainly poses higher risks to the poorest countries, the lowest income uh, developing countries, so it's difficult to foresee what might happen in those cases. But those are countries already being destabilized by things like climate change and other issues uh, um, um, as well. Um, so I'm, I'm, I don't think we'll have any major wars or revolutions as a result of this, in as much as change is going to materialize, especially in industrialized uh, countries, it will be uh, through uh, political change, uh, through the political uh, process. And here, if you operate in a two-party system, a highly polarized system, like in the US, you have extra hurdles to negotiate uh, to get to that outcome. It will be very difficult to accomplish in practice. 
Your book ends on a rather dark note, you suggest, in terms of violent disruption. Be careful what you wish for. Are you suggesting then that the the four horsemen of leveling aren't 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 to be welcomed, that we shouldn't want any of these horsemen to actually arrive because uh, they result in, in terrible bloodshed and unrest and suffering? It is a rather disconcerting kind of conclusion because no, no sane person would wish for another world war. Very few people, I think, would wish for a genuine communist uh, revolution, like a Stalin-style uh, kind of regime. And very few people, nobody is going to wish for a, a recurrence of the Black Death. So yes, in that case, the cure was worse than the disease. Um, and it's not worth enduring all these things just to end up with low inequality. It just so happens that historically, uh, those were the main drivers of higher um, equality. So the challenge for us really is to find ways that are less dramatic, that don't rely on these uh, disasters that are more peaceful, uh, but still uh, address the problem, at least incrementally, at least gradually, at the margins. I'm very pessimistic about the possibility of radical equalization in the absence of such disasters. One thing in historical terms that didn't exist um, before uh, the last part of the 20th century is social media uh, and digital technology. Do you think that social media is actually um, playing a role in getting people to accept Inequality is social media acting against transformative revolutions. Hmm. I think it may uh, cut both ways. It certainly helps raise awareness. It informs people uh, of certain phenomena, but it also distracts people uh, in a way. So I'm not quite sure what the net effect would be in terms how it influences economic inequality. That's certainly something for for social scientists to study in, in much more detail. But it's a very good question. Uh, Walter, you teach at Stanford in the heart of Silicon Valley, so you're very aware of both the inequality that digital technology is creating and also the way in which this technology is disrupting society. How do you expect AI in particular, smart machines, to impact your four horsemen of leveling? Do you think that, that smart machines will compound inequality in the 21st century? They certainly have the potential of compounding uh, inequality in, in the coming years and decades. That's been pointed out many times uh, in, in studies in recent years, because in a way, uh, AI has the potential of hollowing out labor markets even more, of continuing the trend that we have seen in recent decades uh, with globalization, where certain jobs are outsourced to low-wage uh, countries. Uh, there are limits to that uh, trend, but there are very few limits uh, potentially to automation, right? The extent to which AI can take over jobs that are currently being performed by actual human beings in high income uh, economies, but it might be done uh, more efficiently, more cheaply in a more rationalized way uh, by, by machines, by robots, by AI in the future. So yes, uh, the potential uh, for greater inequality is certainly there. And that would not be surprising. Technological change has been driving inequality literally for thousands of years, going back to the earliest agricultural implements. So there's no good reason to believe uh, that further uh, technological change would be much different in that respect. Walter, what's your view on the way in which 
the very wealthy um, in Silicon Valley in particular seem committed to giving money back to society. Jack Dorsey just uh, contributed 25% of his wealth to fighting the coronavirus. Bill Gates has committed uh, billions of dollars to improving the world. Um, are they the fifth horsemen of leveling? Are the wealthy, can the wealthy or could the wealthy contribute to this? Or is this just uh, froth, just a way of them feeling better about themselves while they enjoy their champagne and their yachts? I'm not sure I would elevate them to the position of horsemen because whatever change they can bring about is unlikely uh, to be very radical. And you might be a bit cynical and say the fact that they are able to be so generous is a symptom of the extremely high inequality that we are currently experiencing because otherwise there wouldn't be those super rich individuals being able uh, to make these very generous donations. And that really uh, reminds us of what Rockefeller and his peers uh, did 100 years ago. You accumulate enormous fortunes and then you share some of them uh, with the general uh, population. There's a big debate uh, going on, in fact, in whether it makes more sense for taxes to be higher, for rich people to be less rich, and for the state, uh, for governments to perform those vital functions, or whether uh, having largesse, generosity, uh, philanthropy, but a super rich uh, adds something of, of value to society. That's very much an ongoing debate and an open question. Uh, the great leveler, Walter, is, a, is, a, is a, as I said, a, a deeply erudite um, analysis of inequality throughout human history. It's quite hard-headed, but I assume that you personally care about this, that you've dedicated several years of your life to studying inequality because it troubles you. It interests me. Um, some manifestations of it trouble me, but as a historian, I have the luxury of perhaps adopting a slightly more detached uh, position. And I find it an absolutely fascinating uh, phenomenon. Uh, and I was intrigued by the possibility to identify patterns that hold true over very long uh, periods of time. And that, in a way, was meant to be my contribution. And of course, this leads to a conclusion that may seem pessimistic. It's been often pointed out to me that it is a pessimistic conclusion that, at least in the past, it took very bad things to happen to reduce uh, uh, economic inequality in any significant way. That's not the finding I was looking for, but that's the finding uh, that I came up with. And I think it's important for us to be aware of how difficult it is uh, to tackle inequality. We can't just wish it away. We can't just vote, legislate it uh, away. It takes very special circumstances to make headway. And that's something we have to take into account uh, when we pursue uh, this goal. So that's something that policymakers should be more aware of, I believe, than they have in the past. Walter, finally, um, as I suggested, the book is extremely erudite. You, you quote all sorts of different literature. It's extremely quantitative in terms of its analysis, but you also quote the Decameron, for example, in terms of your analysis of the Black Death. Uh, what book that you read most influenced you in your study of inequality? What influenced me most and inspired me to write my own book was, of course, Thomas Piketty's book, Capital in the 21st Century, which had come out just a few years earlier. And I've been aware of his work and of his argument that uh, it was a similar kind of argument that inequality is very resilient and it takes major shocks to bring it down. 
But of course, he only looked at the last 100 years, last 200 years. And being a global, a pre-modern historian, I thought, well, let's see if that also holds true across all of history. And that turned out to be the case. So in that sense, uh, Piquette was a big inspiration for me. And when his book came out, I realized I have to do my own study now because otherwise someone else is going to do it. That's how I got it done in just a couple of years. You've been listening to Keen On, hosted by me, Andrew Key. Make sure to join us the rest of this season as we explore how to fix capitalism. Make sure to visit us at lithub.com where you can subscribe to the show in iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. While you're at it, if you enjoyed what you heard, we'd appreciate a rating on iTunes. Or if you'd simply tell a friend about the show, that would also help too. Today's episode was produced and edited by Justin Alvarez and the team at LitHub Radio. See you next week, and thanks so much for listening.